as an autistic person, my cognitive wiring is just different than that of the average uh, the average reader and the average academic. So I'm looking constantly for patterns. I'm looking constantly at things in this sort of analytic fashion, which makes me really suitable for academic life. I'm Joyla Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The Oxford Language Dictionary defines a memoir as, open quotes, a historical account or biography written from personal knowledge or special sources, end quote. There has been a veritable explosion of disability memoirs recently. The disabled memoirist attempts to tell a story in a way that builds bridges with a reader who doesn't necessarily share in their lived experience. The memoir is, in that way, analogous to a screen reader used by someone who is blind. Like the screen reader, which translates written text to speech to render it accessible for, for someone who is blind, so too the disability memoir translates the specific experience of the disabled author into words that anyone could understand and hopefully appreciate. Today, we discuss the disability memoir as an accessibility device. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm your host, Juwitha Gupta. My guest today is Andrea Kalanan, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at Memorial University. Her article, View of Legible, Visible, Conspicuous, Disabled Ingenuity and Ability Accommodations in the Disability Memoir, recently appeared in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. It's a really intriguing paper, and I'm delighted to welcome Andrea to the program. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. Tell me a little bit about what sparked your interest in the disability memoir. Well, uh, my background, as you mentioned, is in English literature. I'm a doctoral student. I'm also a writer. Uh, I'm a poet, and my primary area of research is in poetry and autism. Uh, I'm autistic. Two of my children are autistic. Uh, and I wasn't diagnosed. At first, I was diagnosed with ADHD and then later learned I'm autistic. And that didn't happen until my 40s. And so for my own personal interest, as someone who's always been a reader and always been a, a critic of literature, I automatically turned to where I was comfortable, which was people's narratives of their experience. And so part of my self-understanding as an autistic person really came from reading the memoirs and first-person narratives of other autistic people. Uh, and so as I was working through my doctoral uh, research and moving towards having to make decisions about what I wanted to focus on, uh, what I wanted to potentially teach, the autism memoir specifically and then the disability memoir more broadly really rose to the surface as something that fascinated me for a lot of different reasons. And it was really understudied and specifically understudied by people coming from different disability communities. And so that was sort of the origin of my interest in the subject. And then this paper came out of that uh, that focus. 
The disability memoir isn't just good reading, although it is, of course, good reading. Uh, the disability memoir also occupies a really special place in the disability rights and activism movement. What sort of a role does the memoir play when we think about organizing around disability justice? Oh, yeah. The disability, the disability justice movement, as we understand it now, really came out of uh, members of different disability communities, people, disabled people finally having the opportunity to share different stories of their experiences, both, you know, personal experiences and, uh, that overlap between the personal and the political. So, uh, one of the early examples of that sort of writing that I refer to in the paper is the memoirist Simi Linton, who is an American memoirist, um, and, uh, wheelchair user and disability rights activist whose story, whose personal narrative really did a lot to not just um, raise awareness of disability justice issues more broadly, but also shift the narrative around disability from the sort of larger, um, more conventional mainstream ableist perspective of disability as something that is fundamentally tragic and burdensome and oh how difficult our lives must be to recognizing that in every life there is a potential for joy in disability there are beautiful moments of joy and so the disability memoir not only put disabled voices into the dialogue and i mean voices both uh you know literally and metaphorically uh, but also shifted that perspective from oh, how tragic all of these people need to be fixed to actually know what needs to be fixed are the attitudes and the accessibility measures, not us as individuals. You know, I've done a lot of these uh, interviews for The Pulse where I've talked to people who've written memoirs, disability activists who've gone on to write memoirs, and I've often asked them, who is the intended audience? And they'll say it's for people with disabilities, but it's also for the broader, quote-unquote, non-disabled population. Does there, is there a bit of a metamorphosis in the writing or in the tone and the means in which we convey the experience of disability when the intended audience is a non-disabled reader? I think there is. And in my study in particular, I'm looking at the literary memoir. So this isn't necessarily um, autoethnography or memoir written for um for a to be consumed primarily by the disabled community, but like you say, is uh, you know these are books that are meant to be distributed and read by a broad audience. And of course, when we're looking at mainstream publication, there are all sorts of issues and concerns about marketability and all these uh, different issues that constrain the um, the commercial elements of writing and publishing. So if you're publishing in a main with a mainstream publisher. You obviously, uh, you know, the onus is on you as a writer and, you know, working with your editor to make this something that a broad audience wants to read. And I do think that something happens in the writing. So first of all, one, one of the elements that I look at in the book is the way that the uh, what I refer to as the visible and audible markers of disability are reduced on the page. So a writer might be 
someone whose um, who's, uh, fluidity of speech is impacted by their disability. But of course, we don't see that on the page. And one of the examples I use from sort of a classic book would be Christy Brown's My Left Foot, where the author writes of the incredible difficulty that he goes through in order to uh, grasp his chalk with his left foot because he's unable to to use his hands for that task and to write the letter A. And so we have this description of this incredibly arduous process. But when we're reading it on the page, we're not feeling that. We're not getting the uh, sort of direct impression that it's difficult. And so that to me was really interesting how we could, uh, you know, we, we could be reading about um, a moment that requires such such effort and such focus, but our experience of reading it is really fluid. And I think that's something that really makes these books accessible to someone who doesn't have maybe a deep first person knowledge of how uh, disability might feel or how it might present in the real world. So, yeah, I think there is something that happens there where there's a smoothing out of the language. And I think some people might think of that as maybe, you know, selling out or maybe downplaying disability. And I see it as absolutely the opposite. I see it as extending an accommodation to allow readers in who don't have those experiences, who don't have anything to attach that to, and then slowly drawing them into the story to give them a more full understanding of what that that experience might be like. Isn't that interesting? Because often we think about accommodations as something that non-disabled people extend to people with disabilities. Are you saying that the disability memoir takes that relationship between disabled and non-disabled and who's accommodating who and basically turns it on its head? That's that's the that's how I start the paper. That's my approach here. Um, and and you know, to be fair, in my writing, I tend to be a little uh, cheeky and irreverent, and I love identifying these moments where these power structures and these imbalances are inverted. And for me, when I'm reading these uh, these books, what I'm seeing is that same sort of spark of irreverence where, uh, you know, the disabled writer, of course, lives in a world where they, you know, whatever, however their disability may manifest, are always having to have uh, the, the non-disabled world extend uh, accommodations because, of course, we live in a world that isn't made for uh, disabled people. And so often the disabled people are put in positions of having to ask, having to apply for things, having to go through all these steps just to have our needs met in order to interact with the world. So to then flip that, I think is really powerful and I think is, yeah, a, a, a meaningful way of looking at that relationship. You know, when I read your article yesterday, I felt blown away by it. I talked to everybody, my husband, my parents, my friends, co-workers, anybody I could get five minutes. And I said, this is a brilliant article. It, it, you know, how do you, how did you come up with this idea of the disability memoir as an accessibility device? It is such an incredibly creative way of thinking about the disability memoir. I have to ask you, where did you get your inspiration? Uh, that's so flattering. And it's something that we don't often hear in academia that anyone outside of our uh, departmental world is, is interested in the work that we're doing. <laughs> 
I think part of it, if I'm being absolutely honest, comes down to my own disability. And as an autistic person, my cognitive wiring is just different than that of the average uh, the average reader and the average academic. So I'm looking constantly for patterns. I'm looking constantly at things in this sort of analytic fashion, which makes me really suitable for academic life. Um, and when I see these patterns come up, my brain just latches onto them. And I'm always asking, well, why, you know, why, why am I seeing the same uh, attitudes in so many of these books written by different people in different parts of the world in different decades, living very, very different lives, but who are each drawing on these different or, or each drawing on uh, different tools that are doing the same sort of thing, which is offering something to the larger readership. Um, and I think one thing, too, in looking at the um, the particular books that I chose, because, again, this is a, a literary degree, so the, there's our literary texts, and each of the um, the authors that I studied are authors who I think consider themselves writers first, who would be writers whether they were disabled or not, and disability is just part of their um, part of their world, part of their experience, and one of the many things that they want to write about. And so they're using literary tools that I understand and that I'm trained in. And so for me, I was you know just looking at these books, and this seems so glaringly obvious to me. And so when I was going to my, you know speaking with my my committee and with my supervisor, and going, does anybody else see this? They said no, but go with it because this is very interesting work. So I think for me, it's um, I'm tuned that way, and and I think that I'm I'm lucky to be in a position where I can then take that tuning and then share it with other people. It's such a revelation the way you've sort of structured this. But what it got me thinking about was the slave memoir and how, you know, if you think about Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, how their memoirs not only provide a first-person account of living under slavery, but they also became very important in the fight to abolish slavery. What then would you say is the expectation from a non-disabled reader of a disability memoir? Is it enough to just like the book, be inspired by it, or are you hoping for more? Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic question and a, and a heavy question, of course, because yes, wh uh, what is the, um, who is the burden on to make these changes? I would hope, I, you know, I have difficulty with the term, uh, you know, humanizing the um, the disability narrative, because of course we are human to be disabled as part of the human experience. So you can't humanize what is already human, likewise with the, with the, the slave narrative. Um, but I do hope that reading these sorts of books, first of all, one, you know, part of so many of these narratives is how close each and every person on this earth is to disability. You know, often we speak, you know, in, in activist communities, particularly the, the disabled and the not yet disabled as, rather than the non-disabled, right? Because this is, you know, <clears throat> people refer to it as the subculture that anyone could join at any time, right? So for me, I would hope that reading disability memoirs would in part help non-disabled people recognize 
that the differences between our lives in many material senses are are are, are large, but in a truly human sense are, are minimal in a lot of ways. Um, and I would hope that once those wheels start turning, when the non-disabled reader recognizes how much of the world these you know these difficulties impact these these structural difficulties impact they can start to see them for what they are and maybe start to use whatever their power is to make changes and that could be anything uh from lobbying uh your municipal government to make uh infrastructure more accessible to you know if you're a uh, if you're a teacher to creating your uh your course syllabi and curricula in ways that include uh, a broader range of voices um I would I would hope that readers would take that and and would uh, advance these conversations in whatever ways they can. Going back to the paper, in the paper, you do this really interesting thing where you talk about the memoir within a memoir. So this idea that people with disabilities are almost relying on better known illnesses to make a point about a particular disability that may be lesser known. Could you explain a little more about that? Yeah, that was that was a pattern that I saw come up in a number of texts where, because I think those of us who are in different disability communities and, and, and who are disabled recognize that we seldom ever only have one condition that we are living it, when, when living with when we look at uh, you know, what we call comorbidities between different uh, sort of recognized disabilities and then other things like depression, anxiety, trauma, all of these sorts of larger issues, um, addictions issues. You know, you can look at those statistics and those are pretty clear that disabled people tend to also experience these other more um, perhaps harder to put your finger on um, conditions and experiences. Uh, so, for example, one of the texts I looked at was um, by the British memoirist uh, Jenny Diskey, and her book is called Ingratitude, and she's writing about, um, it's it's essentially her memoirs towards the end of her life. Um, she uh, was diagnosed with, um, with lung cancer, and she would um, sort of look back on her life, and as she's going through this memoir, you're picking up, oh, this isn't a cancer diary at all. This is about her life of trauma. This is about her being, you know, in and out of uh, institutions. This is about her dysfunctional family. But by framing it with a, um, you know, we already have a fairly good understanding uh, culturally of what cancer is, what that experience is like. We've, you know, over the past decades, we've learned a lot about cancer. And that's something we can kind of grab onto and use as a framework to pull through these other more difficult, more, you know, less biological, more um, sort of frustrating. And perhaps I don't want to say more frightening because I think for a lot of people, you know, any of these things would be would be disruptive, but more um, nebulous sort of conditions. And I thought that was really interesting when I saw that come up in three or four different books, that it was about one condition. But really, when we looked past it, we were dealing with these other conditions. And that, to me, seemed very, very, uh, as a writer, I looked at that and went, oh, that's very savvy. That's a really mm -hmm. clever way to deal with something so complicated and multifaceted. Mm -hmm. We started talking 
uh, towards the beginning of the conversation, a little bit about the autistic memoir. And tell me a little bit about um, what makes the autistic memoir particularly interesting to you. Uh, because we didn't really talk about Eli Clare, but Eli Clare is a major influence in your paper, in your journal article. And Eli Clare was at one point diagnosed with mental retardation. But if you read Brilliant Imperfection, he is absolutely amazing. And it's a really well-written book. And I think it runs counter to that diagnosis. So the book itself shows us that there's a difference between what is being said about Eli Clare and what we know to be true about Eli Clare. Does that sort of thing also happen for authors writing autistic memoirs or does it get more complicated? I think it is it is a little more complicated. I think there's a relationship between those two things. And and I do in the book position Eli Clare, you're right, um, sort of as an entry point to my conversation about the autistic memoir, because the autistic memoir, I mean, first of all, if you if you just look up autism memoir or autistic memoir, it's dominated by parents and caregivers. Right. It's only been in recent years that autistic authors have had the opportunity to uh, to share these stories in book form and have them circulated. Um, and typically, if we look at, you know, the the diagnostic history of autism and the rhetoric around autism, autistic people and I'm using, you know, air quotes here, aren't supposed to have the sort of introspection, the sort of language skills, anything required to write something like a memoir. We're not supposed to have that degree of subjectivity, which of course is patently false. We, we, we know this, we, we know that autistic people uh, have subjectivity. We know that we can write our own memoirs. We know that we write our own minds, but, uh, or that we know our own minds, but there's so much resistance to this notion of autistic people writing authentically from our own experiences that even to, even writing a memoir, is itself a subversive act, but it is also complicated because where I, I look at um, Eli Clare's memoir as disproving the diagnosis of mental retardation, um, which again, I'm using in quotes, that was the diagnosis that, uh, that Clare was given at the time, um, with, an, with the autism mem uh, memoir frustration, what it really demonstrates is that the cultural narrative around autism is wrong. And I think that autistic people have been fairly unified in, in this, uh, you know, if there's one thing we're unified in, it is in the belief that what the world knows about autism is incorrect. And I think, again, I mean, disability experiences are so broad and so, so different in so many ways, but I think the one thing that is unifying is the difference between how we experience our own lives and what the larger world, even the medical world, tells us about what our lives are like. And that's the value to me in these memoirs to correct that narrative and to offer uh, nuance and depth to the narratives. And the memoirs are savvy. It's a way of almost extending, uh, one could say, accommodations to the non-disabled person. These memoirs and writing them become acts of resistance. But do you think we'll ever get to a place where we could have a disabled memoir written in a disabled voice that doesn't necessarily need to adhere to these um, normal, for want of a better word, conventions around writing and speech. 
that is that that's a good question. Um, and again, so much of it is tied up in the way uh, the publishing industry works and what the expectations are and what the requirements are. Um, one book that I point to uh, right at the end of my article is a memoir uh, called Memoir of a Black Aspie by uh, um uh, by Anand Prahlad, and uh, he's an American um, memoirist and who is autistic. Um, and that's one book that I see as very much um, not catering or not offering these uh, extensions to the non-autistic reader. But it's also a book that has not received wide enough distribution. It's written, you know, it's published with a university press. It isn't occupying that same space within the um, the sort of industry of publishing. I would love to live in a world where um, the experiences of disabled people, the varied experiences, were talked about so much that non-disabled people didn't have to uh be offered these ways in that 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 you know this was all sort of second nature to us so maybe um maybe once these these memoirs and and everything else of course disabled people should be able to write anything we want to write it shouldn't have to be memoir but once these narratives uh grow and they are growing then maybe we won't have to make so many of these accommodations maybe that will already be there i'm just curious do you think i mean we've talked about the memoir today, and it's a very specific way of engaging with an audience, but there are other ways in which people with disabilities engage, particularly performance pieces. Do you think your your concept of the memoir as an accessibility device could be applied to, let's say, uh, a performance as an accessibility device, or am I overextending the argument and the usefulness of the concept? No, I think I think you're absolutely correct, um, and I do uh, speak in the in the article about um, the uh, American uh, theater maker Neil Marcus, who uh, passed away at the end of last year, who was really instrumental in bringing uh, disability arts into the performance space uh, of the theater. Um, here in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, at Memorial, we've got a wonderful um, scholar, Leah Lewis, who has done a fantastic performance piece and continues to work on it about her experience. Uh, it's it's called the Dialysis Project, and it's about her experience uh, with um, using home dialysis uh, equipment through her life. And that's fascinating as well. So I do think that uh, performance absolutely uh, can do a similar thing. Um, in some ways, it's more difficult because, of course, performance is limited to you know you being in the room with the performer or having access to a uh, you know a, a video or audio representation. Whereas books are so much more easily distributed. There you know there's a wider uh, berth of people who you can reach with them. But I think that all of these any sort of arts based practice has that potential to reach out to a large audience and welcome people in and say, I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to offer you a way into my life. And I would hope that you would offer me the same with a way into your building <laughs> in some cases, you know? <laughs> uh, we only have about a minute or so left. I just wanted to ask you where you'd like to see your research and your ideas develop in future. Well, I, I mean, having conversations like this is really exciting to me. I love I love my academic work, but for me, uh, conversations with the larger world are really exciting uh, to have. I mean, 
any sort of uh, public engagement and public discussions around these issues, because obviously disabled people are members of the public. And I love writing my books and having them on shelves, but I really want to see conversations like this happening all over the place. And, you know, book clubs arising would be a wonderful thing to happen. I would love to see more, um, more casual chat. <laughs> now, we should mention you have a lot of bookshelves and books right behind you. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for at least one disability memoir recommendation for the audience. Oh, my goodness. Where to begin? Um, oh, where, where to start? You know what? And this is not one that I have um, included in this, uh, in this essay because it came out too recently. But I just finished reading um, Hannah Gadsby's 10 Steps to Nanette, uh, which is just outstanding. Uh, Gadsby uh, talks about her uh, late in life diagnoses uh, with, uh, I believe with ADHD and also with autism, and also goes through a fantastic history of uh, her life growing up in uh, in Tasmania and the uh, the shame and oppression that she sort of grew out of to move into this beautiful career. And she talks about making, uh, putting her own accessibility needs into her show. And that is, uh, from a structural standpoint, is a fantastic uh, thing to read. So I would highly recommend 10 Steps to Nanette. Well, thank you very much for ch chatting with us today. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you, Andrea, and congratulations on the article. I wish you all the best in future. Well, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to speak with you. Andrea Callanan is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at Memorial University. That's all the time we have for today. If you have any feedback for us, you can always send us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca. You can also give us a call at one 509 4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And leave a voicemail as well as give us permission to play the audio on the program. You can also find us on social media at AMI Audio is our Twitter handle. Use the hashtag PulseAMI to tweet. And you can also find us on Facebook at Accessible Media. This show is available as a podcast on your favorite podcast platform. I invite you to like, rate, and subscribe. And very recently, the show is now also available on YouTube. If you're joining us on YouTube, please don't forget to subscribe so you can have more content sent your way and you know when another video goes up and use that comment section down below to let us know what you think of the programming. Our technical producer today is Marco Flalo. Our videographers are Ted Cooper and Matthew McGurk. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio. On behalf of the team, I've been your host, Juita Gupta. Thanks for listening.